Welcome to Er Garcia, a podcast of work, faith, theology, and economics, arranged and presented by Brendan Byrne. Hello and welcome to Er Garcia. My name is Brendan Byrne, and I have the pleasure of being your host. This is Episode 9, Dead Man Working, Part 2, The Girlfriend Effect. In the last episode, we commenced our exploration of the book Dead Man Working by Carl Saderstrom and Peter Fleming, published by Zero Books in 2012. Saderstrom and Fleming are both academics who have published widely in the field of work, economics, capitalism and business, and in Dead Man Working, they present, as it were, a manifesto of the dehumanising consequences of corporatized labour. They begin by describing the world of post-industrial work as a land of the living dead, one in which the very essence of what it means to be human has been hijacked by the corporation for the purposes of profit, productivity and efficiency. Our very capacity to be socially, emotionally and intellectually flexible, creative and resilient has been colonised by work to the extent where we have now reached the stage where we are always at work. By presenting itself as the fundamental reality of life, Work has become the whole of our life, trapping us into a perpetual round of pointless labour from which we can only hope for a temporary reprieve. The ghastly simulacrum of life presented by the pop psychology of workplace organisation and culture even extends to appropriating our moral and ethical sentiments, enabling corporations to present themselves as the champions of progressive social causes, even as they continue to pursue industrial, organisational and environmental policies that wreck inestimable degrees of damage on the world. In this episode, we will continue our exploration of dead man working and examine how the phony reality presented to us by the world of corporatized work has given rise to so-called emotional labour, the demand that employees not merely demonstrate a fake enthusiasm for their work or artificial commitment to customer service, but that they actually develop phony identities that are also convincingly real. This in turn has resulted in a phenomenon known as the girlfriend effect, in which workers are presented with a simulacrum of reality into which their fake real selves can be invested, an unreal reality posing as real and full human life, but which is in truth only an empty shell whose sole purpose is to facilitate exploitation of the deepest human realities. Cedarstrom and Fleming begin their expose on emotional labour by arguing that there is a shared and near-universal discontent with the human experience of work. Not only are the tasks associated with our work often pointless, 
our experience of that work makes life pointless as well. Moreover, we know that we are shackled to this work if we want to survive economically and socially. But because that work takes such a toll on us physically and emotionally, we often end up feeling empty or dead inside, devoid of any sense of meaning or purpose. In those moments when we have the opportunity to reflect upon our lives, we wonder how it is that we ended up where we are today, compared to where and who we were when we started out on the employment treadmill. This is not a strictly modern phenomenon. Up until the period of the Industrial Revolution, most people were shackled through various forms of feudalism and authoritarian government to lives of drudgery and hard physical labour on the land or in inherited trades and occupations. Leisure was the preserve of the tiny minority who made up the ruling class and its supporting aristocracy. But even when the Industrial Revolution changed the entire basis of the economy, moving the source of wealth away from land ownership to ownership of capital and the means of production, this did not liberate the bulk of the population from lives of oppressive labour. The drudgery of the medieval farm was exchanged for the dehumanising horrors of the dark satanic mills of Victorian England or the roboticizing Fordian factories of the early 20th century. Yet even as the campaigns of organised labour and other social reformers began to win some concessions for workers, making available the prospect not only of safer workplaces, but of leisure and recreation, the physical danger of the factory and mill was replaced by the existential danger of the office and the corporation. Instead of killing and poisoning us physically, work now threatened to do this to us spiritually. This danger lurks in the very loathing which the pointlessness of our work produces within us. Not only do we loathe our work and the sense of meaninglessness which it creates within us, we also come to loathe ourselves for being caught up in the seemingly inescapable prison that has become the world of corporatized work. Unlike the alienation observed by Adam Smith, Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels, and which was largely the product of horrifying working conditions that threatened to literally obliterate the people who worked within them, alienation in the post-industrial context derives from the division from oneself which the spiritual ennui of corporatized labour creates. We not only loathe our work, we loathe ourselves, our colleagues, our managers and our customers, all the while upholding the farce of cheerful customer service and phony professional civility. In other words, the loathing which the pointlessness of our work produces results in a kind of existential splitting, one in which we are internally assailed by despair and anger, but which we mask through external behaviours that bear no relation to our inner being. This splitting in turn results in an ongoing condition of self-objectification. We enter into a world and understanding of work that not only does not suit us, but which enables us to be exploited by others, 
in order to receive the benefits of that world and similarly exploit others in our turn. We dehumanise both ourselves and others, seeing our humanity merely as a tradable commodity in which the trade-off for exploitation by others is the chance to get ahead through exploitation of our fellow workers. Cedarstrom and Fleming argue that this splitting and its resultant self-objectification is not just the classic Marxist form of alienation in which the worker is separated from the product of their labour, it also represents alienation from the social context of our individual personhood, one in which we are separated from others and ultimately from our own humanity. This is the alienation not just of pretense, but of the inconvenience of being human. And the extent of this inconvenience is revealed by studies that demonstrate the degree to which the world of corporatized labour has turned us into what we are not. Inauthenticity, articulated by the old cult of professionalism, in which the worker shucked off their humanity at the workplace doors and became a maximally efficient and productive robot called a professional, is no longer enough. The culture of corporatized labour no longer requires confected personableness. It requires a phony authenticity that nonetheless comes across as sincere and genuine. The modern corporation places a premium on so-called emotional labour, the ability to not only fake authenticity, but to convince others of one's actual authenticity. This is reflected in a phenomenon that has already been observed, in the emergence of compulsory workplace cultures in which it is mandated that employees be themselves. But what is actually being demanded is not the bringing to work of the complexities and nuances of who we are as human beings, rather the command to be yourself is a command to create a version of oneself that is useful to the corporation. What these workplace cultures demand is the kind of emotional labour that can become another resource to be mined and managed for the corporation's benefit. Cedarstrom and Fleming argue that the phenomenon of emotional labour is the equivalent of lifting the phony mask of customer service to reveal the real self beneath except that we no longer know what is real and what is fake. And a metaphor for this confusion of real and fake can be found in the adult escort industry and in the increased demand for what social researchers have come to know as the girlfriend effect. In essence, the girlfriend effect involves a client paying an escort not for sex, but to spend time with them as though they were a couple on a date doing all the things that a dating couple might do. They might have dinner together, see a movie together, or just spend time talking about their lives, hopes, dreams and frustrations. At the end of the paid-for time period, the client and escort part with all the apparent sincerity and heartfelt emotion of a couple going their separate ways. Sederstrom and Fleming argue 
that the girlfriend effect has become our experience of work in modernity. Emotional labor, the demand that we create a simulacrum of our true selves that can be exploited by our corporate employers, has not only become a prized capacity, it has in effect become what we mistake for real life. It's as though we can no longer tell when we are on a date with a person to whom we can have a genuine emotional commitment, and when we are paying a prostitute to pretend that we have someone in our life to whom such a commitment can be given. Work and the environment of corporatized labor has become an escort, giving us an experience of bogus human reality in return for an extravagant and destructive layout of the human spirit. The long-term consequences of emotional labor and the girlfriend effect to which it gives rise is that it violates the deepest core of our humanity. Exploitation under Fordian systems of workplace organization still enabled workers to preserve a sense of their true selves. Beneath the robot exterior of the professional or the plastic smile of the customer service provider, there was still room for a truly human self to exist and which could be reserved for friends and family. Emotional labour, however, so blurs the lines between reality and forgery that we can no longer distinguish who we are personally from who we are professionally. We have truly become what we do as workers. And this blurring colonisation is a prime example of how modern corporatism uses biopower, the human capacity to be socially emotionally and intellectually flexible, creative and resilient, for its own purposes. By colonising, or perhaps even creating, modern pop culture's cry for authentic individuality, corporatist capitalism relentlessly sells us the message that being ourselves is our most valuable workplace commodity. But genuine authenticity is the very antithesis of commodification. Our authentic human selves can never be reducible to an object of exchange. The drive toward the deformed authenticity of emotional labor sanctifies our existential investment in corporatized work until we can no longer tell our real selves from its phony counterpart. This emotional capitalism preferences so-called life skills, our capacity to emotionally invest in the tasks that make up our working lives, regardless of their nature, while simultaneously being able to transfer that investment to a new set of tasks should they come along, over whatever technical or intellectual skills we may have gained through actual life experience. But the sinister implications of emotional labour is revealed in its shackling to what Sederstrom and Fleming call emotional administration. That is, the close management of emotional investment via a strict cost-benefit analysis. This analysis finds its metaphorical counterpart in the advice doled out by some relationship counsellors who advise their clients to view the emotional investment of a relationship in rather the same terms as they might view a bank account. Into this account, 
they deposit all their partner's positive behaviours and qualities, while from it they deduct all their partner's negative conduct and attributes. The result is a rolling tally of the account's balance, which ultimately determines whether or not the relationship itself survives. In credit, all is well. In debit, all bets are off. In the same way, emotional administration in the world of corporatized labor measures workers' capacity to be convincingly authentic and thus display the life skills which the post-industrial world deems to be an employee's most valuable commodity. This analysis determines our standing within an organization, our prospects for promotion, even if we get to keep our job. More chillingly, with emotional capitalism, everything about us is on display and subject to judgment. Gone are the days when we can escape detection by being a faceless nobody in the crowd or by finding a place within the organisation that enables us to fly under the radar. The demand for authenticity is a demand for ultimate exposure and failure to comply is itself grounds for suspicion and distrust. After all, if you have nothing to hide, why are you hiding? Little wonder that the rise of emotional capitalism has seen a concurrent rise in the kind of self-helpism and so-called life coaching that promises to give us the life skills we need in order to, to survive the world and environment of corporatized work. Ironically, the rise of emotional capitalism has seen the breakdown of a consensus between management and workers that flourished under even the most autocratic Fordian systems. The shared view that the world of industrialized labor was inherently dehumanizing. This has been replaced with a pseudo-therapeutic ideology that asserts that it's not the world or its construction of work that's the issue, it's you, the individual, who needs help. The confessional culture that began with Freud and the invention of psychotherapy, and which continues today with the public airing of personal dirty laundry on daytime television chat shows and the laughingly mistitled reality TV, peddles the idea that Getting things off your chest will liberate you from all the obstacles that are preventing you from enjoying success. But all this culture achieves is the creation of an unequal power relationship in which we hand ourselves over to experts who judge our humanity before reshaping it into an acceptable new form, which we are told is salvation itself. Sederstrom and Fleming assert that in the same way, emotional capitalism pretends to be concerned for and respectful of the deepest core of our humanity, all the while luring us into a culture of corporatized labor in which our real selves are exposed and through the process of emotional labor, converted into fake authentic selves which we can no longer distinguish from who we truly are. Thus remade, we enter into and are complicit with the very exploitation which the corporation perpetrates against us. 
The sad truth about emotional capitalism is that the directive to be yourself, to discover and exercise your authenticity, is nothing less than the operating framework of a command and control culture. The child who angrily commands their parents to enjoy a game in which they are participating out of unenthusiastic indulgence rather than genuine desire fails to understand that the very command itself destroys any possibility for enjoyment. The modern post-industrial corporation, however, understands this truth very well. Its intention in demanding authenticity from its workforce stems not from any actual investment in employees' human reality, but from a desire to exploit their social, intellectual and emotional intelligence. Emotional capitalism makes a fetish of our deepest human reality, then sells it back to us as the means of our personal redemption. Work within the world of corporatized capitalism is the ultimate expression of the girlfriend effect, a fake authenticity leading to a fake individual identity participating in a fake reality that only mockingly reflects the true and deep human reality which we can no longer identify. And it is at this point that we conclude this episode of Ergasia. In our next episode, we conclude our survey of dead man working by examining some of the attempts that are made to escape the all-encompassing power of corporatized work, attempts that range from the absurd to the tragic. On a housekeeping note, for those of you wondering how to spell the title of this podcast, well, Ergasia comes from the Greek for work or employment, and its spelling transliterates into English as E-R-G-A-S-I-A. So if you're searching for the website, type in www.ergasia.podbean.com. Podbean, by the way, is the hosting service I use for this podcast and is spelled P-O-D-B-E-A-N. But that, however, is all for now. Many thanks to everyone who has been listening so far and to those of you who have supplied comments, feedback or suggestions. To leave your thoughts on this podcast or to offer any ideas, please go to the webpage at www.ergasia.podbean.com or go to the podcast pages on Facebook and Twitter. I hope to have the pleasure of your company for the next episode. In the meantime, I am your host, Brendan Byrne. Goodbye for now. You have been listening to Ergasia, a podcast of faith, 
work, Theology and Economics, arranged and presented by Brendan Byrne. For more information, please go to www.ergacia.podbean.com.